This episode of Indie Film Weekly is brought to you by the American Institute of Architects' third annual I Look Up Film Challenge. Register by June 26th at ilookup.org. Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a no-film school podcast. I'm Liz Nord. I'm Charles Hain. And I'm Joan Fusco. It's June 22nd, 2017. And on this week's show, how do we handle the rising cost of film school? The great buy versus rent gear debate, wise words from Wonder Woman cinematographer Matt Jensen, and as always, news you can use about new gear, upcoming deadlines, indie film releases, and Ask No Film School. Hi everybody, welcome to this week's show from downtown Brooklyn, New York, home of No Film School. As always, we're here to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy making films. And this week marks the official beginning of summer! Woo! Woo! So, it's time to share some fun facts. Sound effect? Fun Fun facts! (laughs) About summer blockbusters. Now, we keep talking about the age of cinematic TV and yada yada yada, but it's really remarkable how seamlessly directors and DPs are going back and forth between different media in a way that was unheard of only a few years ago. And this year's heavy hitters drive the point home. I interviewed Matt Jensen, the DP of Wonder Woman earlier this week, which you'll hear more about later, And he shot all kinds of TV, from True Blood to Ray Donovan to Game of Thrones in recent years. IndieWire did a cool post this week called Eight TV Episodes by the People Behind 2017's Biggest Films, and it was fun to read about stories like how Tom McGrath of The Boss Baby got his start on one of my favorite 90s shows, Ren and Stimpy. Did you watch that one, Charles? I watched Ren and Stimpy. I haven't seen The Boss Baby yet. (laughs) Well, I think we're both outside of the demographic now. Um, I'm always in the Alec Baldwin demographic. I'm just going to say that. Oh, fair enough. Or how M. Night Shyamalan's turn directing the first episode of Wayward Pines helped usher in his career rehab before this uh, year's earlier film split. Or perhaps the biggest jump, up-and-coming comedy writer Jordan Vogt-Roberts leaping from the pilot episode of You're the Worst to helming Kong Skull Island. Now, summer also means that some of you are getting ready for film school in the fall, and many of you may be feeling the pain of not being able to afford that luxury. Our friends over at Filmmaker Magazine published an article earlier this week addressing that very issue, titled Student Debt's Impact on Post-University Film Careers. The article argues that at the same time as the industry is becoming more diverse than ever in certain ways, it's also running the highest risk of completely shutting out lower or even middle-income people. This isn't just because the cost of film school is so high and many lower-income students can't afford to take on unpaid internships, but also because even if they manage to get into film programs, the debt they face afterwards doesn't even let them get their feet wet in, say, directing before they have to take commercial work to pay the bills. So we all know this isn't a new problem. The main reason I didn't go to film school is because even though I got a generous scholarship, students at the time were spending way more than I could afford on their thesis films. But it's getting worse. The Filmmaker article reports that costs at the top film schools are higher than they've ever been. Film undergrads at places like CalArts, NYU, USC, and Columbia can expect to pay nearly a quarter of a million dollars for four years of education because of additional lab, equipment, and insurance costs on top of higher tuition fees. Further, college debt is up across the board in the U.S., but film and media graduates were among the degrees that suffered the most as a result of their loans. According to a 2014 study by the Brookings Institution's Hamilton Project, film and media alumni must pay over 20% of their income to cover their annual debt in their first year out of college alone. So what do we do? Well, of course, there's always the option from which our site was born, no film school. 
But then you have to go the extra mile to make sure you do all the networking and learn all the skills that you would if you were in school. If you do want to go to school, make sure you use the internet for the other thing it's good for, research. Look for scholarships specific to your school, scholarships specific to whatever makes you unique, like your region or background, subsidized federal loans like the Federal Perkins and Stafford loans, etc. And if you're already in school, look for small film grants for thesis films, or consider doing what Columbia grad students recently did and lobbied to change fee structures and hidden costs at your school. So I think my co-hosts in this room can weigh in in an interesting way, because Charles is a film professor, and John is the most recent to graduate film school among the three of us. I didn't go to film school. <sighs> but I went to acting school. You went to school. I went to art school. Yeah. Art school, in air quotes. The big thing for me is I want to point out the wonder that is public universities. Like, when you listed all the expensive ones, Columbia and NYUSC, they're all private. Whereas, like, UCLA has always been a really reasonable cost for in-state California residents. And then New York now has the school, which, full disclosure, is where I teach, which is the Fierstein Graduate School of Cinema. It's part of the City University of New York, so it's a public institution. So, like, you end up with, like, 50000 in debt instead of 250 which is still – 50000 is still a lot of money and nothing to sneeze at. But it's a probably more manageable amount of debt than a quarter of a million dollars. Um I don't know that I would – I don't know how I would feel about teaching at a place where people walked out with a quarter million of debt or if it was just you're either rich or crippled by debt and those were the two choices for access. Um, for me, film school still remains like a viable thing not only because I teach there but also because I think it's a really great opportunity to spend three years doing nothing but worrying about getting better at what you do. Like I think you can totally have a career without it. But it tends to move some people up the ladder a little faster by getting to dive really deep into it. But, like, I don't know if it's worth a quarter of a million dollars. I went to USC for grad school. It wasn't a quarter of a million dollars then. But I certainly walked out with, like, more than $100,000 worth of debt. And that was a lot. And it affected a lot of my choices when I first got out. Um, I, I didn't have the luxury of... Like, it sounded like you were describing, like, do I do commercials or features? And it was like, what can I do to make money? Give me any, like, there was, I didn't do anything that was even like a commercial for five years after I graduated. I was just, like, on sets gaffing, trying to, like, pay my insane loans. Um, it's a tough decision. Obviously, the Internet's a lot of great resources now, and there's all this great info there. But the opportunity to, like, dive in with 50 other people into, like, bathing yourself in movies for three years is so magical. I would also say look at public universities and look abroad. Yeah. And I mean, I'd say, uh, you know, like I was saying, I went to art school. I didn't go to film school, but they're similar. Um, I would say film school is a more valuable education because you're actually learning technical skills. Um, whereas there's some, you know, artsy programs where things can't really be taught. Um, but there are definitely things that you can learn in film school that will help you later on in your career, no matter if you're like jumping out of school and directly able for some reason to start directing features or, you know, if you're lucky enough to be doing commercials, even you got to work your way up. And um, I think that having that background where you've had the experience with multiple different tools and you've been exposed to a lot of different theory, that'll set you apart further than other candidates for jobs because there are a huge amount of jobs today in the video industry in general. Um, we're not talking about, you know, like creative expression and filmmaking, but we're talking about using what you love in some capacity uh, to work and make money and, you know, live 
So that's a viable option, I think, you know, like going and doing videos for uh, Vice or whatever uh, branding agencies, um, you know, like media companies like that. They're more like branding agencies right now because they're taking uh, contracts from brands and they're making content for them and they need people to make that content. And that's not going away anytime soon. So, you know, if we're talking about the merits of film school, I think that... um, is a very important thing. But if we're talking about the price of film school, you know, I like, I'm going to check my privilege here. I was really lucky to go to art school. I don't know if it was worth it (laughs) necessarily to spend that kind of money to go to NYU. Um, I think, you know, you got to look, you got to do your research into what kind of education you want to receive. I'm not sure how valuable an NYU degree is today versus like a state school degree if you're going into that kind of profession where you're going to be making video content for companies, um, which, you know, that's where you start networking. That's where you start really making connections that could lead you off into sort of the commercial world and then hopefully into the future world. As That's that's been my experience, at least, I out agree. of college. I don't think that the vices and refinery 29s of the world are looking as are looking at whether or not you have a film degree. I think they're looking at whether or not you make cool stuff. Yeah, it's like all hiring in the film industry is based on work. But I think it's an interesting point to remember that like there's way more work in the film industry than there was 20 years ago. There's like an explosion of being able to make a living making this stuff. So if you can make cool stuff, it doesn't matter where you learned how to make cool stuff, whether it was on the Internet or whether it was in a school. There's so much work. The other thing for me is that it really goes back to knowing yourself. Like one of the reasons I went to film schools, I make friends really slowly like I'm not like I lived in L.A. for a year and I don't think I made a friend that year. Like I'm I need a, a lot of continual contact. So film school is great for me. And by the end of four years, I had close relationships. I started a company with someone from USC. If you're the kind of person who goes to a film festival and walks out with four best friends and three agency contacts, you might not need a film school. But if you're not like that, film school can be a great way to have more opportunity to get to know friends and collaborators. Yeah, and that's something we hear again and again in these interview podcasts is that, you know, the people that did go to film school, uh, the thing they're happiest with is the relationships they made there. And I think they kind of take for granted the technical skills that they have learned there too because, like, you know, learning Avid, learning Final Cut, learning how to use a camera in general, those are highly sought-after skills. So, yeah, I think it's got its merits. Is it worth it? That's the question that our website basically runs around. So, And moving on to our next story. This one is super hot off the presses. So we still don't really know the reasoning behind this monumental decision, but Daniel Day-Lewis has retired from acting as of, I think, an hour ago. We're recording this a few days early. The greatest actor of our generation shall act no more. Day-Lewis has earned numerous awards, including three Academy Awards for Best Actor for his performances in My Left Foot, There Will Be Blood, and Lincoln, making him the only male actor in history to have three wins in the lead actor category. He did not give a reason for his retirement, as I said earlier, but in a statement made by his spokeswoman, Leslie Dart, she confirmed the news, saying, Daniel Day-Lewis will no longer be working as an actor. He is immensely grateful to all of his collaborators and audiences over the many years, This is a private decision, and neither he nor his representatives will make any further comments on this subject. Damn. If there ever were a film to retire after, however, it would certainly be Paul Thomas Anderson's untitled fashion drama scheduled to hit theaters this Christmas. 
The reunion between famed actor and famed auteur is hugely anticipated, and Day-Lewis still intends to help promote the movie, according to a person familiar with his plans. I'm hoping this isn't him retiring forever. Variety brought up the fact that in the late 90s and early O's, he appeared to give up acting for a while, reportedly working as a cobbler before Martin Scorsese convinced him to return to the screen for Gangs of New York. And thank God he did. He was awesome in that movie. Let's hope his return to the shoe industry is short-lived. I have two words for you. Rap career. (laughs) Well, I'm throwing down the gauntlet here on the show. We're going to move on from last year's Make and Bacon Film Festival to this year's Write the Indie Script that gets Daniel Day-Lewis back on screen. Oh, my God. Yeah. And if you do, you will definitely be a guest on the No Film School podcast, the highly, highly coveted guest spot. Finally in headlines, on the show two weeks ago, Emily reported on Apple's foray into original programming, but said that she wasn't really going to take it seriously until the company showed a real commitment by making a major development executive hire. So they've clearly been listening to the podcast, and it looks like that has happened. Jamie Ehrlich and Zach Van Amberg are leaving Sony Pictures Television to co-lead video programming at Apple. Part of their purview will be to acquire original documentaries and two music films that both premiered at Tribeca, Can't Stop, Won't Stop, about Sean Diddy Combs and Clive Davis, The Soundtrack of Our Lives, are already set to be released via Apple this month. I'll be really curious to see what Ehrlich and Van Amberg come up with, particularly because they have a reputation for fighting for shows they believe in during their 10-plus years at Sony. If you are looking to release this coming year, definitely keep an eye on Apple as a potential buyer, because all signs now point to the company spending some of its considerable wealth on original content. So, Charles, what do you have for gear news this week? All right. Well, so it's hot outside. Summertime has come to New York City. And uh, the world of tech rumors are also heating up. Uh, Darren James just did a great article about the next revisions coming down the pipe from Canon and Sony. Canon with the 6D Mark II and Sony with the A7 III. The biggest news of the bunch is the A7 III getting 4K video, which brings it closer in line to its very popular big brother camera, the A9. Uh, Next up, back at NAB, Flanders Scientific was showing off a very cool scope stream software, which basically adds real-time video scopes and waveform monitoring to a computer that's on the same network as either your DM series monitor or one of their Box.io LUT boxes. This is going to work on any computer connected to the same network. And so this is like a really great cost-effective way to add more scopes, either on your laptop on set or like if you have an old iMac lying around in your edit suite. This is something that most people end up spending a lot of money for. And Flanders sort of like giving this away in software is super cool. Now, after announcing it at NAB, the software is finally out there. So if you've got any Flanders, Box.io, or DM monitors, download it, fire it up, and uh, tell us what you think of ScopeStream. Uh, the last bit of gear news this week is a camera that shoots 5 trillion frames per second. Pew, pew, pew. Yeah. It's not a cinema camera in what we consider like the traditional cinema camera sense. But if you've ever been on set shooting off speed and you're like, all right, let's go to 500 or like let's go to 1,000 and you've wondered, how fast can a camera go? Uh, currently, Swedish researchers have gotten to 5 trillion FPS. So you're not likely to see it in the next revision of the Phantom Flex. It's slow enough that you can watch photons of light move, and that's pretty darn cool. Thanks, Charles, and we'll be back with you after the break for Ask No Film School. This summer, the American Institute of Architects invites architects and filmmakers to collaborate on films for the third annual I Look Up Film Challenge. 
Architects plant the seeds that blossom into stronger neighborhoods, towns, and cities. This year's theme, Blueprint for Better, challenges filmmakers to capture a project that highlights the powerful social impact architecture can have on communities. Register by June 26th at ilookup.org and submit films by August 13th for a chance at cash prizes and national distribution. So this week in Ask No Film School, Axel Roldos, whose name is pretty sweet, asked us, with ShareGrid becoming popular, what's stopping someone from just buying a bunch of equipment on their own and then renting it out to have it pay for itself when you're not using it? He added, just curious, because I live in Atlanta, where there's a burgeoning production market, and see a capacity to get some cool gear that will pay for itself in no time. Someone tell me what I'm doing wrong. (laughs) Yeah. He wants to know what he's doing wrong, but I'm not sure. It doesn't sound like he's doing anything wrong. What do you think, Charles? So, first off, technically... Nothing is stopping you from becoming a rental house if you want, Mr. Roldos. And I would say Atlanta is beyond having a burgeoning production market. I would say Atlanta is on fire Fire. with production. Uh, I have a DP friend in L.A. who is thinking about getting a place in Atlanta because he is there more often working than he is in L.A. So it 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 is hot. Also, the TV show Atlanta, very good. So many people have the same thought. Right. Even before ShareGrid, you could do this with Craigslist. I remember when my friends would like buy a DVX 100 in like 2004 and a year later it was totally paid off in rentals from Craigslist. So it's totally a thing people do. It is the reason why many DPs, you know, seem to own so much gear. And you're like, how do you own $70,000 worth of gear? And it's like, well, you've rented it out to pay for it. But there's a big hurdle here, which is maintenance and processing of repairs. So shoots are hard on equipment, and no matter how hard you are on your own equipment, you're never going to be as hard on your own equipment as someone else is going to be on your equipment if they don't own it, right? So there are all these tiny little things like connectors and cables that are constantly breaking. While there is insurance for the big ticket items, like when someone drops a lens, all that little stuff is usually below the deductible, and it really adds up. And yes, you can charge it to the rental. But like the number one thing people do all the time is they have like a DSLR with an Atomos or whatever. And then they rent it out three times back to back. And if you don't check it every single time and you fire everything up and you make sure all the ports work, when it comes back at the end of that week and one of the ports on your Atomos doesn't work, you're going to go to the last renter and you're going to say, hey, the port doesn't work. And they're going to say, we never even used the Atomos. And like, who knows if they're telling the truth or not. So you'll have to go back through the line and you'll be in arguments and eventually you have to pay for the repair yourself. So all those little things like cables and connectors, they're all wear and tear items. And that ends up adding up. So this is a strategy for paying off your gear. People do it. But it's more work than you think it's going to be. And a lot of that work is being really thorough every time you send out gear to check every piece of it. And every time that gear comes back to check every piece of it and to really maintain those relationships. In addition, the beauty of a rental house is if I rent something from a rental house and at midnight it breaks, they have a 24-hour number and I call them. And if the camera goes down, they can usually send another out. So be prepared, depending upon what you rent out, if you rent out like a color grading monitor, people shouldn't be calling you at four in the morning if it doesn't work. If you run out an Epic camera and it stops working at four in the morning and it was clearly like you hadn't maintained it properly, they're going to call you at four in the morning trying to figure out what's wrong with it and how to get it fixed if they're doing an overnight shoot. So just be prepared for some of those things. It's more work than it seems like, but it is definitely the way that a whole lot of filmmakers you know end up paying for all of their toys. 
Uh, if you decide to go for it, good luck. Thanks, Charles, and thanks for your question, Axel. And now for some indie movies opening this week that you can check out. First up on VOD, Blood Road came earlier this week. I'm really already intrigued by this movie based on the headline of our forthcoming interview with the director alone. The headline is, How a First-Time Filmmaker and World-Class Cyclist Biked Through 1,200 Miles of Jungle to Make Blood Road. Sweet. This feature doc from Red Bull Media House follows ultra-endurance athlete and new filmmaker Rebecca Rush as she rides the Ho Chi Minh Trail in search of the site where her father, a U.S. Air Force pilot, was shot down in Laos more than 40 years earlier. Its production story is just as interesting. It was shot in 6K on the Red Dragon and Red Weapon, and the whole camera team was based on dirt bikes for the entire shoot, carrying all their camera equipment on their backs. We will link to that article in the podcast post. Sounds pretty extreme. Sick. Indeed. And coming to Netflix this week, Nobody Speak, Trials of the Free Press, will be out on June 23rd. This Brian Knappenberger doc premiered at Sundance earlier this year, and as Emily wrote in her most anticipated list for that festival, this doc hits very close to home. It's about the changing media landscape, the threat to free speech, and a couple of billionaires who conspired to kill a beloved New York publication. It reveals the forces that brought down Gawker through in-depth interviews with its founder, Nick Denton, and other journalists and media experts. But ultimately, the story is bigger than Gawker itself. It's about the deepest underpinnings of our democracy, which come under threat whenever the freedom of press is curtailed. And another film that premiered at Sundance a few years ago is coming to HBO. This is, of course, The Birth of a Nation, which comes out on June 24th. This was the darling of Sundance 2016. However, the film quickly fell from grace and out of the limelight after new revelations surfaced from director Nate Parker's collegiate rape case. It was bought for a record $18 million out of Sundance and ended up being both a box office and award season failure. Whatever your feelings on the matter, you'll now be able to watch the historical drama on HBO. Parker also stars as Nat Turner in a retelling of his life as a literate slave and preacher in the antebellum South, who orchestrates an uprising against slave masters. So the podcast this past Monday featured Bitch, the weirdest movie John saw last year, And this Friday, the weirdest movie I saw last year is coming to theaters. So it's Weird Movie Week here at No Film School. That movie I'm talking about is Anna Lily Amirpour's The Bad Batch, a dystopian love story set in a community of cannibals in a Texas wasteland. Suffice it to say, there was a lot of moaning and groaning and even booing at the TIFF screening where Emily and I saw it. You might remember Amirpour from her breakout black and white vampire flick, A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, which I really enjoyed. Emily interviewed the director and the film star, Suki Waterhouse, at TIFF last year, and they got into raw detail about trusting your creative instincts and how traumatizing filmmaking can be. We will link to the interview in the podcast post. And on the total opposite end of the filmmaking spectrum, one of the sweetest movies I've seen probably ever is also coming to limited theaters on Friday with a national rollout in July. Michael Showalter's The Big Sick was one of the most talked about movies out of Sundance, and we put it on our list of indie movies you need to see this summer. Pakistan-born comedian Komal Nanjani, who you might know from Silicon Valley, co-wrote and co-stars in the film, which is loosely based on his own cross-cultural love story with the woman who's now his wife. That woman also co-wrote the film, but in the film she's played by Zoe Kazan. A little confusing. But you, you get the idea. I'm hoping to have the real-life couple and co-writers Kamel Nanjani and Emily V. Gordon on the podcast later this summer, so look out for that. 
All right. So up next, we have grant deadlines. First up is the Screen Australia Documentary Development Grant.、Uh, it's due June 16th. If you're looking to develop an Australian documentary or co-production, you could get up to thirty thousand dollars for development from Screen Australia. Screen Australia's documentary development program ex- assists experienced documentary makers to achieve planned outcomes for the development of their projects. This could include further research, writing the, rec- the next draft of a script or treatment. Strategic shooting and/or editing to attract marketplace development or production finance, or compiling a sizzle reel. On the other end of the globe, the Film London production finance market is coming up July third. For those of you in Britain with some bigger budget projects, it coincides with the BFI London Film Festival. The PFM selects projects to meet potential investors for films with a budget over one million euros, and has a parallel micro market for films with budgets under that amount. The PFM will help you build new business relationships by meeting international sales companies and securing various forms of investment in companies and film projects. The micro market for projects with budgets below one million euros is fully integrated with PFM, making it more far-reaching than ever before. And now on to some festival deadlines. The Cork Film Festival has their regular deadline on June twenty-fourth. This takes place in County Cork, Ireland, from November tenth to the nineteenth. It's an Academy Award and BAFTA qualifying festival, and it's one of Ireland's oldest festivals, as it's been running for sixty-three years.、And、Can we start doing a thing where we do the、uh, festivals in the accent of the festival? <laughs> I thought the same thing. I mean, John is an actor, and I freaking love the Irish accent. I, I, you know, I'm not going to get into it now, but I have a highly detailed process in how I make my accents. Anyways, on the same continent, the Leeds International Film Festival has a deadline of June thirtieth. That's their regular deadline. It takes place in surprise Leeds from November second to the sixteenth, twenty seventeen. It's also an Academy Award and BAFTA qualifying festival, and it presents nine national and international competitions for short films. With total cash prizes of over five thousand bucks. Last up is the St. Louis International Film Festival, whose regular deadline is June thirtieth. It takes place in beautiful St. Louis, Missouri, from October thirtieth to November twelfth, twenty seventeen. SLIF is an Academy-sanctioning <laughs> qualifying festival for both narrative and documentary short subjects. The festival is especially concerned with providing filmgoers in the St. Louis area the opportunity to see works that would otherwise never screen in St. Louis. It's definitely one to consider. St. Louis is a beautiful. City. If you do end up getting in, you should go, and you should definitely go to Pizzioli. And every year they show the renowned porno Sliff. <laughs> Doesn't that sound like a porno? Really, I was thinking it sounded more like a sea creature. Like, ooh, catch the Sliff. <laughs> and now we're going to kick off the weekly words of wisdom. Yet again, I'm going to go with a post from Loretta Provost, who posted the best things you can do for your DP career offset part two this week. And she said, "quote It helps greatly to care."、Uh, podcast veteran Le Pen talked about feeling burnt out working on projects where the other crew members aren't invested. Oh my God! There is nothing worse than being the only one who cares on a movie set. I did a movie once where the director was like clearly over it. I have no idea why they were there, but I swear I'll never do that again. It's the worst feeling in the world when you care more than everybody else. But you have to care, or else why bother doing it? And、um, caring is like the base level required for the job. I like to do things I care about, and working with others who care about it too. And、uh, it's such a great piece of advice and reminder. And that was Ariana Le Pen, who、uh, was on the podcast in a great episode about guerrilla filmmaking. So if you haven't heard that one. 
check it out. She's really good at her job. Yeah, and this is a really cool post. Again, we'll link to it in the podcast post this week. Um, Loretta Prevost uh, interviewed Le Pen and three other DPs about some of the things that you can do to further your DP career during your off times when you're not uh, on sets. It's good stuff. Speaking of DPs, as I mentioned at the top of the show, I had one of my favorite interviews ever with Matt Jensen, who shot Wonder Woman on 35 millimeter film. And he f- he framed the difference between shooting for action films and dramatic films in a way I had never heard before. I will let you hear it from him directly. Here's Jensen from our phone call. It's a, it's a very interesting question. Um, I I think it's all the same skill set. I think you're all you're you're always trying to communicate as effectively and as simply as possible whatever idea is driving the scene. So, hopefully, um, and uh, even in an action sequence, you're trying to tell a story. And uh, luckily, on Wonder Woman, uh, this is, you know, Patty was, that's Patty's thing. I mean, she was always trying to move the character forward in a, in a direction or uh, move from point A to, to B in the in the story, even while we are enjoying all the action. So, um, and in a drama, it's the, the same thing. You're trying to, to clue into what what the characters are doing, what's going on emotionally, and, you know, and how the story is being advanced. And so, if, if you look at it in that way, fundamentally, every shot should advance your agenda. So... In that sense, it's 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 no different um, in the broad scope. But um, uh, you know, action sequences are so big uh, and technical that um, a lot of times it, it requires a more um, removed approach. Mm. Uh, you have to be very critical about um, what the shot is doing and uh, what part of the shot is effective um, if it's a really fast cut or something um, and I, I think it, you almost have to be divorced from feeling uh, in order to, 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 to see if it's working and I, th- and, and I think with the drama or you know just two characters relating in a scene um, when you're on set and you're looking through the lens, you can kind of feel it. You kind of it becomes uh, an intuitive process where you can see how the the actors are relating, and you're very close with them. So if you're in tune, you can kind of tell what's important or what they're emphasizing, or you know if they're going to look a certain direction, um, and you need to. Uh, pan with them or not pan with them, you you get a very intuitive sense of what's going on because it's all right there in front of you. And this may be, I don't know, common knowledge, but I'm learning a lot from like video essays and stuff. And uh, this week I'm going to talk about an article I wrote about Patrick H. Willem's video essay, Realism, How Much Does It Really Matter?, In it, he breaks down the concepts of realism, formalism, classicism, and verisimilitude, which is now my new favorite word of all time. 
The easiest way to think of these forms of filmmaking are on a spectrum. On one end, we'll say the left end, you have the concept of realism. That is a style of filmmaking that aims to represent the real world with the greatest commitment to realism. In terms of filmmaking strategies, this means the use of objective wide shots and long takes with the camera at eye level and limited editing. On the other end, the right end, you have formalism. Formalist films can be described as highly stylized stories with elaborate sets, costumes, and special effects with no interest in imitating reality. Now, right in the middle, you have classicism, which mixes together elements of both realism and formalism and is where most films fall today. Namely, it takes the production aspects of formalism and puts them in the service of a story with realist values. I think that's a pretty cool way to think about these concepts, which I have heard a lot before, but it's, it's, it's easier with that image in mind now to, uh, to really get those straight. So formalism is obviously the risk or play when making a movie because, let's face it, movies grounded in reality are easy for audiences, marketers, and studios to understand. As a filmmaker, the thing you should be most concerned of, however, is verisimilitude. Willems describes this as a movie's inner truth. Now, this is key. A movie doesn't have to adhere to actual reality, but it must embrace its own concept of reality. So as a director, you're obliged to show your audience how the reality of your film and your world functions and the rules by which it operates. What matters, Willems points out, is maintaining verisimilitude and sticking to its own rules. I hope you all feel wiser now. I sure do. Now, you're probably familiar with one of the biggest global film events, the Cannes Film Festival, but there's another major event going on in that French seaside town this week, the Cannes Lions. Every year, over 10,000 people from 90 countries attend this festival for people in the advertising and communications fields. And I know that many of you are interested in commercial directing or shooting, so the Cannes Lions website is a great place to look at what the world's top agencies are doing now, particularly because you can see all the work nominated for the prestigious Cannes Lions Awards. And on that note, we want to give a shout out to Ina Abiodun, friend of No Film School and co-founder of the StoryCode Meetup here in New York. She won a Cannes Lion this year with her company Matter Unlimited for a short film they did about global maternal mortality. Congrats, Ina. Woo! Interesting. Was it a commercial about maternal mortality? Like, what were they advertising? There are a lot of like uh, advertising. Right. Yeah, advertising agencies do a lot of uh, kind of what's the word like pro bono work, work promoting causes or talking about causes. It's not all straight up ads. In this case, I believe it was a pharma thing. There you go. More applications for that video degree. Or film degree. (laughs) Now, speaking of realist films, um, I saw a film at Toronto last year that probably exemplifies this concept more than any other film I've seen in a festival at my tenure here. Granted, I am a self-proclaimed formalist, so I see a lot of those movies. It's called Werewolf and actually has nothing to do with werewolves, but everything to do with opioid addiction in Canada. Obviously. Um, So on the podcast next week, on Monday, our interview podcast... I talk with the director and stars of that film, who are actually not stars, but just normal Canadian people, and we had this fascinating discussion on the benefits of working with non-actors. I think every Canadian person is a star. I think every Canadian person is a werewolf. Not every Canadian person is addicted to opioids. Opioids. Well, I can't wait for that one, John. And in the meantime, I hope you all will subscribe to the podcast and rate us with five big fat juicy stars on iTunes and stay in touch. 
I'm at LizFilm on Twitter. I'm at Charles Hain on Twitter. And I guess before we get into this, <laughs> we've been getting a lot of controversy around people repeating my Twitter handle. Um, if you feel the need to weigh in on the debate, you can tweet at me, at Jim underscore John underscore Jim. Jim, 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 John. So if that annoys you, like it sometimes annoys me, <laughs> please let me know. Or if you love to annoy John, like I do, please let me know. <laughs> and you can read about everything we talked about on the podcast and all sorts of things about the craft of filmmaking at nofilmschool.com. And we're all on Twitter at nofilmschool. Happy summer, guys. See you next week. <laughs>